This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Tim, a little bit of our COVID backdrop. We talked a little bit about uh, what's going on in New York uh, City and New York State, but we did see the vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech uh, showing a high ability in lab experiments to neutralize some of those virus strains first detected in Brazil, the UK, and South Africa. You've got U.S. uh, airlines are urging the Biden administration to develop virus passports. We have seen infections spread at the slowest pace since the pandemic began, but we are seeing global cases uh, pick up some speed. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of good news and a little bit of concerning news. Yeah, that's, I think, a a smart way to put it. And one company that's been involved in helping others really work to find some solutions uh, is our next guest. Yeah, Christian Henry is chief executive officer of Pacific Biosciences, joining us on the phone from Maine this afternoon. Christian, thanks so much for, for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. Thank you for the opportunity. So talk a little bit about how you are thinking about variants right now, because when we talk to these medical experts, these healthcare professionals, these doctors, we hear the same thing over and over again. The United States is not good at genetic sequencing when it comes to the virus. We just don't do it enough. Well, I I think that we definitely, as a percentage of the population that we test, we do it less than other countries, such as the United Kingdom, where you know they may actually be out in the lead. But I do think there's a lot of um, excitement around uh, testing for and surveillance as a whole, and you're seeing the Biden administration uh, get more engaged in, in this area, and, and we're part of that process. Uh, and so I think we're picking up steam, but, but you're right, we have been behind other countries. Well, tell us a little bit about the work that you guys are doing specifically, because you are involved in helping other companies find solutions and really a better understanding uh, of the coronavirus, which as much as we've learned, there's still a lot to be known when it comes to COVID-19. So tell us specifically about the work that you guys have been doing at PacBio. Yeah, so PacBio, we developed this DNA sequencing technology. So it's the, the actual technology that allows scientists and others to to look at the coronavirus strains and uh, basically decode the genetics behind the virus. And we are, uh, you know, advancing the state of, of the art with that techno- with our technology. And we have partners such as LabCorp, uh, which is a major testing organization, testing thousands of samples per week. We're all familiar technology. with LabCorp. At this point, we are. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you are, yes. But they're testing thousands of samples each week uh, using our technology to uncover the various, various variants, and, and then we pass that on to the CDC and, and others. We say thousands a week. In, in, in order for you know, us all to sleep well at night, what would you like to see how, in terms of numbers? How, should we be testing every positive case that comes in? Well, I think that in an ideal world, we would have the opportunity to test every positive case, but but that's probably not practical. Uh, realistically, you know, if we can be testing, say, uh, 25 to half of 50 percent of the cases that are that are occurring 
and we have the testing locally. So in lo- you know, locally around the country, I think that would give us much better uh, routine visibility in, into the virus, how it's changing, and really give us the early warning signs required to, uh, you know, basically put protocols in place to try to stop the spread. How much does it cost to, to do this genetic sequencing? Well, it really depends on it, it depends on the scale you're operating at, but the sequencing cost itself can be as little as a couple of dollars a sample. So it's really not that expensive uh, on the the sequencing itself. Of course, there's all of the infrastructure around that which can make it more expensive, and that's dependent on the the scale of the laboratories. But a company like LabCorp can can do it very inexpensively at, at very high volume. Kristen, explain to me and and really our listeners and our audience in terms of why sequencing, and you guys do long um, red sequencing, why all of this is so important in understanding variants or getting ahead of variants and and ultimately getting control of this pandemic or future pandemics for that matter. Yeah, well, I think what's so important is when you know the actual structure of the DNA sequence at every single base position, you can understand what's changing and how that how that affects how the virus uh, infects you, how that affects how the virus tra- gets transmitted from person to person. And so you can understand those variants in a much deeper sort of way than with any other technology. And that's why sequencing is so important. Our version of sequencing is called long read sequencing. And all that is is the ability to look at very long pieces of the DNA and through that be, get a much deeper view or a more accurate and complete view than other DNA sequencing technologies. Right. Yeah. And go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say the devil's in the details, right? I mean, this is Christian. We've only got about 30 seconds, but as specific and as detailed as you can get, it's going to be crucial. It's, it's absolutely essential. Uh, you know, we need to be able to track these viruses. And it's not just coronavirus. It's the mm-hmm. future thinking about the next pe- preventing the next pandemic. So pan-viral sequencing is going to be extremely important, and you're going to see it rise into the national uh, public health consciousness, not just in the United States, but around the world. And, and I think this is where global... Uh, global uh, assistance and collaboration is going to be so important. Christian, you heard us talking about it uh, when we were talking about what we wanted to talk to you all about. September of 2020, here we are in the middle of a pandemic. You take over as CEO. You had been a board member uh, and you had been chair. But what was it like to, to take the helm of the company in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah, it was it was actually really challenging in the sense that you can't you know, one of the hallmarks of a great CEO is someone that can build a culture and share a vision and sharing, uh, creating that culture through Zoom is really tricky. And and so we've had to navigate very carefully. We've been able to do some re- great recruiting to build a build a new team. And actually, the pandemic's actually made that easier, to be honest, because the desire, you know, the ability to move to work from anywhere is becoming more apparent. So in some ways, it's been very challenging. In other ways, it's been very helpful. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, do you anticipate that that working from home component uh, trend is no longer a trend? It's just kind of the way we're going to do it going forward, or at least a hybrid approach, uh, Christian? Yes, I do. I think we're going to have a hybrid approach. I do think there's huge benefits to having 
places where employees can congregate, congregate, create culture, collaborate, and I think we'll continue to operate in that sort of way. But the notion of everyone has to be in the office every single day to be effective or to be efficient in their job, that, that notion is completely gone. As We've been very effective uh, during this pandemic. So when you took over as CEO, you in the process, you raised $85 million with an additional public offering that was back in November. SoftBank bought 6% of the company in January and then invested $900 million in it in February. What are you doing with all that cash? Well, we, we're using it to expand our business in every dimension. You know, one of, one of the reasons why I decided to take this role is we have incredible technology and the opportunity to exploit that technology or bring it to market for a broader customer set is right in front of us. And so we're investing heavily in globalization of our company, uh, development of our commercial footprint, and then accelerating the core technology itself. So we're investing heavily in new products to create a uh, broader portfolio to really serve in these, these DNA sequencing markets, which are which are growing and great opportunities. Well, talk to us about the opportunities and what that kind of growth rates you, you know, what are the growth rates you anticipate, Christian, uh, when it comes to revenues, when it comes to to earnings? Because, I mean, your stock's been on a tear. It was up more than uh, 400% last year. It's up another 21%. This year, it's up 15% just in today's trade. I mean, and I will say there's a whole biotech trade going on today with the rally. You know, what is it that you can tell us about growth that justifies you know, right now, a valuation, a PE of 350. Well, I think that the one thing you can see is our, our technology is highly useful in an emerging area of clinical whole genome sequencing. And that's really the ability to look at a whole, the whole human genome at one time and to use it to help inform doctors of diagnosis of rare and undiagnosed diseases, in oncology applications, in neurobiology, where very complicated diseases like Alzheimer's and things like that, the whole genome sequencing market is just at its very infancy. And our technology, we've demonstrated, is superior to any other technology out there to really try to unlock the mysteries of, of the human genome in a clinical context. And so that's, that's a huge growth opportunity for us. You know, if you think about it, Every baby born, perhaps one day, could be sequenced, and that's a big market opportunity. Do you continue to do it alone? Just got about twenty-five seconds. We we will continue. We will continue to keep growing and look for opportunities to partner with people. We have we did a great uh, collaboration with a company called Invite, mm-hmm. uh, and you know I think at the end of the day we're looking at building out an ecosystem as our, with our long-read sequencing right at the uh, center of it. All right, gonna leave it on that note. I'm looking at a story on the Bloomberg uh, or on uh, Google, DNA sequencing market to reach maybe like over 11 billion by 2027, wow. so it's definitely growing. Hey Christian, great to check in with you. Keep us posted on what you're up to. Christian Henry, CEO of PacBio, joining us on the phone from Maine. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. Well, this week, Bloomberg Business Week, featuring a deep dive into equality. It's all part of our enhanced equality vertical here at Bloomberg and at Bloomberg News. And this story will be in the issue. It's out later this week and now on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. It's about the unfair property taxes that keeps black families from gaining wealth. Here's more from Bloomberg's Renita Young. 
I feel like there is no safe place for me to have this conversation because I'm going to get judged one way or another. That's Delicia Scott from Detroit. She was overtaxed on what was once her home. She became a proud homeowner in 2005, a dream because she always wanted stable housing for her kids, something she's never known. But when Scott lost her job during the Great Recession, she fell three years behind on her property tax payments. And those payments she owed were much higher than she should have been paying. Then Wayne County took her home away and auctioned it off for less than 10% of what she paid for it. I feel betrayed too. Last year to learn that I was overtaxed by 5000 It makes me sad. It makes me depressed. It makes me feel like a failure. For years, the city of Detroit used inflated valuations of Scott's house to calculate her property tax bills. She now rents that same home for 27 percent more than she once paid for the mortgage. You know, it's not just a rental property. This is my home, right? I raised my children in this space. Scott is not alone, and her story is not unique. Her home was among tens of thousands in Detroit's lower-income Black neighborhoods that the city's assessors routinely overvalued. And this happens all across the country, where nationwide data show local officials have also systematically undervalued homes in affluent areas, reducing the taxes those homeowners paid. Bambi Hayes-Brown leads the nonprofit organization Georgia Advancing Communities Together, which focuses on affordable housing and community development. She says the entire real estate system has a role to play in equitable housing, and it all starts with training. Not just your training to get your license and your training for renewal, but to also go deeper into ethics, trainings that look at internal racial biases and how to overcome them. In many cases, real estate investors profit off of unfair tax burdens. But for the people who they weigh on, like Delisha Scott, it leads to a vicious cycle of unpaid bills and property seizures and ultimately destroys the best chance for families to build generational wealth. For more on this story, subscribe to the Paycheck Podcast from Bloomberg with a new season focusing on the racial wealth gap. You can find Paycheck on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. All right. And the crux, the basic uh, story that is one of the most read on the Bloomberg today here with his story is Bloomberg News Projects and Investigations reporter Jason Grotto on the phone in Chicago, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. I have to say, uh, Joel, Tim and I have been talking about this story so much. Um, It's just so unfair. Yeah, and that's, I think the unfairness is the thing that um, really stings about this one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody hates property taxes to begin with, but then to have unfair qualities kind of layered on top of it, I I think is a a thing that can definitely provoke some outrage. And it is one of these things that's sort of hidden in plain sight, um, but it does affect uh, people of color, especially black communities, uh, disproportionately. So, so Jason, help us. You, you've been through so much data on this one. Help us break down what you found. Uh, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me, uh, everybody. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, the, the, the thrust of this story is actually based on a massive study uh, out of the University of Chicago, uh, Harris School of Public Policy. A professor there, Chris Berry, analyzed 26 million property tax records over a 10-year period, and all over the country, um, the analysis found the same pattern, and that is lower-priced homes uh, being over-assessed 
and higher-priced ones being underassessed relative to the market value of those homes. And, of course, all property taxes are based off of these valuations. So it's sort of bad data in, bad data out. And the result is it just skews the entire property tax um, uh, and places a much greater burden on those who can least afford it. it makes it regressive. So tell us the, the story of Delisha here. So, you know, uh, D- Delisha is someone who, you know, I've been talking with for many, many months. Uh, you know, obviously, it took a lot of bravery for her to come out um, and actually talk and put her story out there. You know, there's a lot of shame that goes on here. But essentially, you know, she bought a home back in 2005 uh, after working at a corporate cafeteria. She doubled her income when she got a job at a domestic violence shelter and was able to qualify for a mortgage. And and things were going along fine until the Great Recession uh, when she lost her job. And it took her a couple of years to get a job back, and she missed a tax payment. And once you fall behind on property taxes, it's really difficult, you know, to get back, uh, you know, caught up with those because there's so many fees and fines that get ladled on. And so she just couldn't catch up. Um, The Wayne County, the county, you know, for Detroit, foreclosed on the home and then auctioned it off, um, as your story mentioned. And since then, it's been sold two more times while she's been renting the home. So the last sale was for $84,000, you know, far more than she paid originally. And, you know, part of the reason why the value has gone up, because her rents have gone up, because now, you know, it's an income-producing property, and the cash that it that it throws off every month is keeping the, right. the value high. Well, the yeah. invest right. There's a whole investment angle into that, and and I wish we had more time. But one thing I do want to get to is this whole idea between, you know, tax assessment being overvalued and private appraisal sales being undervalued. And as you say, you know, Christopher Berry's re- research. It's not just Detroit. You talk about a, an example in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. It's all over the place. We, we spoke with a woman, Carmen Daniels, in East New York, you know, who, you know, the, the really hard thing here is Ms. Daniels, her property, uh, you know, a single family home, um, she felt like the valuation that the New York City Department of Finance put on it was pretty good. You know, she thought it was pretty fair. Mm-hmm. But then she learned that, you know, three miles away in Clinton Hill, there's a condo that someone bought for $3 million dollars. And the tax, you know, it's taxed as if it were worth only $1.2 million. So even though that home, the market value, is eight times greater than hers, the actual tax bill is only $1,000 more for that prop, higher price property. So once again, the burden of it is, you know, tilted uh, unfairly. There's something called the effective tax rate, which I'm sure everyone knows about. That's what gets skewed because of these valuations. I have to ask you to be quick, uh, 15 seconds. Uh, Detroit doing anything about this? Just very quickly. Well, there's a press conference tomorrow. Um, So far, we haven't heard anything from the city, so it's kind of up in the air. All right, listen, we're going to be following this story, and uh, we are counting on you to update us on it because it's an important one. Uh, Jason, thank you so much. Jason Grotto, Projects and Investigations Reporter at Bloomberg News, with us from Chicago. Jill Weber, Editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the Remote Access from Brooklyn. This story, it is going to be in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's already online and on the Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. 
All right, so this half hour, we've got two smart political stories. Let's get to the first one. It's from Bloomberg Business Week national correspondent Josh Green. He writes about President Biden's administration, specifically on his picks at the Department of Justice and uh, the antitrust chief. You talked to Josh about this, didn't you? Yeah, we talked to him on Quick Take earlier today. This is a big story. Yeah. I mean, kind of a perfect time for Josh to publish this Business Week story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been looking at this. Let's get into it with Josh Green. He's also the author of Devil's Bargain, Bargain Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Nationalist Uprising. We might talk to him a little bit about that in just a moment too. He's with us uh, on the phone in Washington, D.C. So Josh, so listen, we've been watching uh, Joe Biden uh, roll out his team, his antitrust pick. This is going to be a big one. Um, Yeah, it is. Um, And we've gotten, you know, early indication this morning uh, when the news broke that he's planning to appoint uh, Lena Khan to Mm -hmm. the Federal Trade Commission that, uh, you know, he's he's open to this band of reformers pushing to change antitrust law over the last three or four years. Uh, But I think the two big jobs that remain to be filled that will tell us a lot about what Biden really intends to do as far as big tech and antitrust are the antitrust chief at the uh, Department of Justice uh, and the chairman of the FTC, which which are two big jobs that he has yet to fulfill. So I think that's what everybody's going to have their eyes on now going forward. Who are some potential candidates for those? Well, two of the ones I mentioned um, for the DOJ job are uh, Renata Hess, who was the uh, had actually had the job at the end of the Obama administration. She was the acting chief, um, but she is somebody who's worked for a lot of the big tech companies like Amazon and Google. And there's really been a push from progressives against appointing someone like that. Um, the other kind of candidate that I mentioned is uh, a tech no- lawyer named Jonathan Cantor, who's the favorite of a lot of progressives. Um, he has worked for companies like Yelp that have sued a lot of the big tech giants. Uh, and the thinking is that if Biden were to appoint him, that would send a clear signal that the government was planning uh, to continue the Trump administration's aggressive moves against breaking up big tech power. OK, so I'm glad you brought that up because this is something that we talked a lot about on Quick Take earlier today, Josh, the, the political element of this. We talked how there seems to be bipartisan support for, you know, quote unquote, reigning in big tech. How do Democrats feel about big tech versus how President Trump and Republicans feel about big tech? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's clear it has become more clear since the January 6th Capitol insurrection that uh, Republicans antipathy toward big tech is mainly driven um, by the belief that the tech companies are unfair to or censor conservative viewpoints, um, including knocking Donald Trump off Facebook and Twitter uh, and, and, and banning the kind of conspiracy theories that have become very popular among uh, hard right Republican figures, both politicians and political actors. Uh, on social media networks. Democrats, I think, by contrast, or at least the reform-minded stripe of Democrats, are more worried about things like uh, competition, innovation, and the harms that things like misinformation do to our democracy generally. Um, Outlets like Facebook were a big vector of misinformation that helped to drive these attacks uh, and, and, and that seem to be uh, coarsening our culture and, 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 and polarizing our politics. And a lot of Democrats trace that to the problem of monopoly power in the tech industry. So while there is uh, bipartisan opposition to big tech, it will be interesting to see uh, if they agree on the same problems and uh, if they can come together behind an antitrust chief 
who has yet to be named uh, to go after these. I talked to Republican Senator Mike Lee, who said he was certainly open um, to getting behind the Democratic pick, but it would have to be one that spoke about the kind of issues that he's concerned about as a Republican. Well, I do wonder, too, Josh, having spoken to you know some of our legal folks here and, and reporters, whether or not we've got to change the legal definition of monopoly in order for there to be something more significant against some of the big tech uh, some of the big tech companies. You know, I think that's a part of it. In, in speaking to law professors, for my story, looking at the at the what's at stake in the antitrust chief, you know, one of them warned me that if progressives get too far out over their skis, they'll actually go beyond what the law allows. Um, but I think it's also worth mentioning. I sort of flick at this in piece that I mean, there are also efforts underway in Congress. Um, there are senators like uh, Amy Klobuchar. Um, who have been looking at broadening antitrust law, strengthening the Justice Department. So this is really a a multi-pronged effort. Um, But in in order to be as aggressive as some of these reformers would like, it would definitely take changes in the law. Um, Hey, listen, since we have you, and then in the next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Sophie Alexander's story that's on the Bloomberg um, about how the Trump organization and really Trump Donald Trump is going to look to figure out how does he hold on to those 74 million uh, supporters that brought him, uh, you know, that backed him in November. How does he turn them into basically Trump consumers in terms of his business empire? What are you watching when it comes to Donald Trump and his next steps right now? That's a great question. Uh, The first thing I'm going to be watching is how he communicates with them. I mean, he's been knocked off of social media. He's, He's missing the platforms that were so powerful for him. But as we've seen uh, in a lot of the political fights just just since his impeachment, he still has an iron grip over the Republican Party, and he now has a presidential office that sends out um, tweet-like memos to to reporters in the press at all hours now. So he's certainly trying to um, keep a hand in the fray and keep his brand intact. Um, but there, there's been a lot of speculation among among reporters and political types about how exactly he's going to monetize that. Is he going to start his own network? Uh, is he going to sign a Fox News contract? Is he going to try and do something commercially to take advantage of this group? Or is he more interested in uh, holding on to them uh, as, as a political party? And, and, and the early indications we've gotten are that he's most interested in politics. He's gone out and said that he intends to punish the Republicans who voted to impeach him. Uh, he sent a letter to the Republican National Committee um, of threatening them not to use his image <laughs> and his name to right. raise money because some of that goes to backers. Um, so we're still waiting to see, but it's clear that he intends to uh, keep his hand in politics and in yeah. business in a way that ex-presidents haven't often in the past. We can definitely count on that. All right, Josh, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, always can count on Josh Green. Uh, interesting aspects when it comes to our political system. Josh Green, national correspondent at Bloomberg Businessweek. Uh, check out his story. It will be featured in the coming, upcoming issue of the magazine. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. 
This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Anton Schutz. He's president and chief investment officer at Menden Capital Advisors. Back with us uh, on the phone from Florida. Um, Anton, nice to have you here. How's it going? Well, it's been a lot more fun this year than it was early <laughs> last year. Oh, my gosh. That is so true. Well, all right. So let's just talk. Let's start kind of big picture. Uh, we've certainly seen the Treasury curve move. We've seen certainly a different market environment. How do you see it, especially for the financials that you cover? Well, um, you know, the, thank you for the, all the stimulus uh, <laughs> checks because, really, it's it's kept you know, the economy going, it's kept credit quality strong. And as people anticipate inflation, you've got a yield curve now. And, you know, banks trade with the yield curve, even though this yield curve isn't the biggest, most important thing for them, it's still helpful because they've got reinvestment. And obviously buying treasuries at 60 basis points doesn't really make anybody any money. So where are you seeing opportunity when it comes to banks? So, um, you know, first of all, banks have got to get their costs in order. You know, you saw a merger this morning with SoFi. Uh, they bought a small bank. Uh, fintech and banks are colliding. So banks have got to cut costs. They need to invest in fintechs. Uh, they need to partner. And uh, so mergers will be very high among banks. And uh, you'll see more uh, fintechs buying bank charters. And you'll see more banks investing, you know, billions of dollars in financial technology to improve the way they reach their customers. Well, it's interesting. Really think well, about it. well, it's interesting too Sorry. that you. No, forgive me. I, I, you know, I was just thinking about what you were talking about because J.P. Morgan Chase two came down, uh, came out today, and they are pulling the plug on their Chase Pay digital wallet just about a year after uh, discontinuing the standalone app. So it's interesting. I feel like you know the big big banks, kind of you know tiptoeing into new tech, but also they're really pretty cautious. It feels like. I mean, what's is there a bigger trade or a bigger mo- bigger move that you see coming? Well, um, you know, I, I like investing in banks that have you know, not only a banking product, but also have the chance to benefit from this change in technology. So like a Live Oak Bank, which has uh, a fund that invests in fintech, has five direct investments in fintech, uh, like a, a FinZac, which is a new core challenger. Um, you know, you've really got the best of a bunch of worlds, right? You've got a, a yield curve. You've got, uh, you know, uh, lots of growth from uh, – you know, Triple P, and uh, you've got some great new initiatives uh, from the Small Business Administration. So, you know, you've really got uh, a lot of things going in a positive perspective. So when it uh, comes when it comes into consolidation within these small regional banks, do you see it happening between these small regional banks, or do you see more of these sort of SoFi deals, these large fintech companies, whether or not they're publicly traded or, or privately held, buying them up? Uh, I think you're going to see both. Um, you know, if you think about costs, banks have to drive costs down. The one thing that the crisis did do is accelerated the adoption of financial technology by businesses and consumers, and probably accelerated it by like five years. You know, if you think about it, so many people never used technology to access the bank, but during the midst of the crisis, they had no choice. I mean, if you wanted to transact, you had to use technology. And, and so um, everybody's responding to that, and, and the key is the get the cost down to deliver the product to the consumer, to deliver the co- product to your, your business, to be up with the latest technology. And, uh, you know, you've also got a regulatory environment that's going to shift with a new administration. So, you know, getting some of these mergers announced earlier in the year 
uh, will be more successful than anything later in the year, particularly the biggest. If you see big deals later in the year, they may have a hard time on the, some of the new regulators getting approved. Smaller transactions are going to have a chance to get approved throughout. But uh, it definitely gets a little dicier. And all the transactions that have been announced so far have been well-received by the market. You know, you saw M&T by Peoples. Mm -hmm. Uh, That transaction was very well-received. The CIT transaction, which was done right in the middle of the crisis, I mean, that stock has literally more than doubled uh, since that deal was announced. So the market likes that transaction a lot. Um, And I continue to see a lot of growth in the states that have been very tax-friendly. You know, Texas has, has had tremendous growth. You know, Florida, Tennessee that tremendous growth and companies within those markets are going to merge with each other and get bigger and stronger. Anton, do you see real regulatory risks coming out of the Biden administration for the financial services sector? Well, um, particularly on the consumer finance side, uh, the CFPB is is going to have some real teeth to it. And I expect them to be pretty active on consumer finance. But, you know, I, I think it's a very different atmosphere from a regulatory perspective. But but that's where some of the biggest abuses have taken place. And they want to try to protect the consumer that that's where they're going to find it. But, you know, very, very large transactions are going to have a real challenge, uh, particularly as, as more and more of the regulators get replaced. Uh, Quarles term at the Fed ends in, in uh, November, I believe. Go back to, though, I'm just looking at a couple of names that you mentioned, and I just want to make sure our, our audience heard it. Live Oak Bank shares, tickers LOB. I mean, on a tear last year, up about 150 uh, percent, and it's continuing uh, to move higher this year. I think it's up another 19 percent. Triumph Bancorp was up about 28 percent last year, and it's, I think, up about 63 percent uh, this year. What's the story specifically? Is it just a better yield curve, or is it, again, that fintech play? What is it specifically? Because that's pretty tremendous. And I know they're coming off of, yeah. you know, being maybe beaten, beaten down a little bit, but still, that's a big run. Yeah, well, I mentioned what you know, Live Oaks drivers were earlier, and mm-hmm. clearly uh, having a being a major national SBA lender, they're the largest small business administration lender in the country. Right. And there's some great new programs out there, and obviously the financial technology exposure is, is tremendous as well. On Triumph, they actually have a payment uh, app specifically for the trucking industry that could translate potentially into shipping and many other things, and people recognize the value of that app and. And, and how powerful it's been in capturing market share. So, so that one's been driven by it. And then, and particularly in New York, you've got a signature bank, which has got um, you know, really strong exposure, so does Silvergate, to mm-hmm. some of the new digital currencies. You know, and, and they are getting tremendous deposits, tremendous market share, and you know, things like stable coins are gonna be really important. Sure, you know, you've got Bitcoin and the other ones that are important, but volume just continues to increase in those. Yeah, good stuff. Um, Anton, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Anton Schutz, he's President and Chief Investment Officer at Menden Capital Advisors. Love talking names with him. Uh, joining us once again on the phone from Florida. Right, Kind of interesting, some of those smaller bank plays or regional bank plays. Yeah, and the focus that he has on areas like Florida, Tennessee, Texas, where people are moving. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.